Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 213, recorded on October 31st, 2021. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Let's do the news. We start this week with some cheap hardware. Well, if you can manage to get your hands on it. It's been nearly six years now since the Raspberry Pi Zero was first announced. And combined, the Zero and its wireless-enabled big brother, the Zero W, have sold almost 4 million units. And this week, the Raspberry Pi Zero 2W was announced. Priced at just $15, the Raspberry Pi Zero 2W uses the same SoC as the launch version of the Pi 3. But it has its ARM cores slightly clocked down to 1 gigahertz to reduce thermal load, alongside 512 megabytes of LPDDR2 SD RAM. The Zero 2W is equipped with a mini HDMI port, micro SD card slot, hardware encode, and decode of H.264, and nice to see this, a hack-compatible 40-pin I.O. header. But what might be the most impressive thing here, and really great for those of you who've already invested in a previous Pi Zero, Simon Martin, who designed both that original Zero and the Zero 2W, has been able to squeeze all this extra performance into the original Zero form factor. So that means almost all cases and accessories designed for Zero should work just fine with this new board. People are loving that online. And this makes me think there's two things about this. One of them is thermal. But before I get to that, I also want to note that this also brings the entire line up to 64-bit now. That's maybe a small step for one product, but it's a giant leap for Pi Kind. And this Pi 2.0 shows us that they are really working on their thermal game. Thermals are always a challenge when you're trying to package more performance into the same small package you had before. It's an age-old problem. You want to up the performance, but you want to cram it into the same space. So how do you dissipate that heat? Well, similar to what we've seen in other recent Pi products, like my Pi 400, the Zero 2W doubles down on some of their lessons learned recently and uses thick internal copper layers to conduct heat away from the processor. Yeah, they mean business. Apparently, if you hold them both in your hands, you can actually feel that difference in weight. Now, sadly, actually getting your hands on one is going to be a challenge for a while. Zero 02W is not immune to the current global semiconductor shortage. So as a result, they expect to ship roughly 200,000 units this calendar year and a further 250,000 to follow in the first half of 2022. But they do say, quote, we aim to keep 02W in production until at least January 2028. In news that I just quite never get used to saying, Microsoft's Edge browser on Linux has finally reached official stable status. As reported by Sophos, and now covered in several other outlets as we record, a stable version of Microsoft Edge for Linux is now available in the this part's hard to say, too, official Microsoft Edge Linux repositories. <laughs> now, it is version 95, just like the latest stable release on Windows. There's been no official announcement by Microsoft as we record this. It's possible this new cycle just got ahead of them, maybe hit the repo and people started reporting about it, or it's possible they just don't intend to make a very big deal out of it. But if you've been using the development builds of Edge, it should just auto-update with the rest of your system when you do an update again with the repo you already have set up in most cases. And you can actually visually tell when Edge has been updated because that little beta badge on the icon will finally go away. Now, if I recall, Chris, you started trying out Edge right after it was released, 
I did too. Did you manage to stick with it, though? Not at first. It was definitely an on and off thing. But as Chrome or Firefox would give me a fit about something I was trying to do, um, for example, this typically would happen, Wes, as you know, like we'd be using some WebRTC VoIP app to do a show and Chrome would be spinning up my CPU and causing my fans to go crazy and Firefox would have some issue with the screen sharing or or some weird Google policy had been applied to my Chrome browser. And so just different things would come up and I would try Edge. Yeah, you need a spare browser sometimes. Yeah. And I would find that Edge handled those workloads better. And so over time, Edge has kind of picked up more and more things I use it for because in my use, I've just found that it seems to use fewer resources doing the same job. And it has that Chrome compatibility that I need in some of those WebRTC apps. So that's kind of been a winner for me. Plus, I have issues with Chrome where it's constantly nagging me to sign into a profile when I log into a Gmail inbox for like one of the shows. And I I just don't get that garbage with Edge. So overall, I've You know, I found the experience to be above average, I'd say. And I find myself on most systems now installing it alongside Chrome and Firefox. Have you used it much after you gave it that initial go? No, I'll be honest. I kind of got installed, played around with it. Seemed like Chrome, but with a Microsoft stamp. And so I didn't keep using it. But I can definitely appreciate how, yeah, having an extra browser lying around. And I'll be honest, I've not really been impressed with Chrome lately. Some of those same things you mentioned, they're definitely bugging me. So maybe a less Google version might be what I need. Yeah, I don't think you're going to see Linux users in mass switch, though. You might see some enterprise adoption, some educational space adoption where people need compatibility. But you know what I mean? I don't think this is going to be like a revolution at the regular Linux user level. No, I don't think so. I mean, I'm going to keep using Firefox. But hey, don't we want a little browser diversity? Unfortunately, Edge doesn't quite count there. No. Well, transitioning from open source web browsers to open source messaging systems and clients, we noticed EMS, the folks behind the Element Matrix chat client and the Matrix hosting service, have announced Element 1 this week, which promises to bring Matrix, WhatsApp, Signal, and Telegram chats all into one place. The service is priced at just $5 a month, and they're offering, quote, a fully managed consumer experience with the bridging and hosting managed by the experienced EMS team. They say it's also basically unlimited usage with some reasonable fair use limits to protect against bots. Yeah, that's pretty understandable. You see, the fundamental value pitch here is that you have a lot of chats online, potentially. I sure do. (laughs) Yeah, and you'd like all of it in one place. And for some of us, that is a very tempting product. And you could even see them expanding this beyond just what I've listed and even maybe going to things like Discord, Slack, Mattermost, and lots of other services. They can just kind of layer them on top of this. But there are some trade-offs. Bridges support conversations, invites, images, and attachments, but they don't support voice or video calls between platforms, although your voice and video attachments should be supported just fine. And the big caveat that right now, end-to-end encryption is broken in order to make the bridges work. But the EMS team do say they've taken some efforts to reduce that risk, noting, quote, The bridges operate in Element's trusted EMS environment, with no content scanning or data mining. And of course, Element to Element or any other Matrix app supporting end-to-end encryption, those conversations are still end-to-end encrypted by default. They also support voice and video calls. If you're someone who manages a lot of online communities or just participates in them, and you've been thinking about getting into the world of Matrix, 
this might really be a no-brainer. I can't really think of an easier way to get started with this kind of stuff and have a nice hosted, curated experience. Yeah, in fact, setting a matrix can be one of the barriers to adoption, and they've really packaged it all together here. I also think that you're right, Chris, when you say expect more bridges coming soon. This might be a nice funding method where EMS gets some money and some of that gets directed to developing better or future bridges. Actually, they hint quite strongly at this on their blog, saying, we'll be listening carefully to all feedback to see how to develop Element 1 in the future. It could be that people want more bridges added, or perhaps end-to-end encryption for existing bridges might be deemed more important. Or something else entirely. Either way, we're all ears. I like what you're saying there about this being a way for users to fund EMS and element development. And that reminds me a little bit of the Nebucasa setup for Home Assistant. That's the commercial organization above Home Assistant. And they offer a Home Assistant remote access service that's very reasonably priced. It's full of features and it gives Home Assistant great functionality that you're going to kind of want anyways, which is the check of a few boxes and a monthly subscription. But what you're really doing with that subscription is you're financing future development of Home Assistant. And so by subscribing to this Element 1, you'd be helping the Element organization continue as just a, you know, a Matrix fan. So I think this isn't quite ready for me, but I am definitely on the fence. I'd love to see a Slack bridge set up. Ooh, that would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Or just a one-click Discord bridge. Then I could close a few more Electron apps. That's one of the main goals here. One Electron app to rule them all, Wes. Uh, And while we're talking about the Element chat app, the chat client added export support this week in version 1.91. So with this latest release, you now have the ability to export chat from all rooms and DMs on the Element web and desktop apps. And this new export ability was definitely one of the development team's most upvoted features. And the implementation looks pretty solid. Not only are you able to choose what you want to export, the current timeline, the entire timeline, or just a specific number of messages, but you're also able to choose how to export them. HTML, plain text, or my favorite, JSON. As we record on a Sunday evening, Linux 5.15 is scheduled to be released just momentarily. This merge window opened back in September, and there's some particularly interesting new features and changes in this release, including one that I've been dreading for weeks. Oh, we're going to touch on that. But first, one of the most talked about new features is the new NTFS3 file system driver, originally developed by Paragon Software. It feels like we've been reading about this one forever, but now it's finally shipping. Something else we've been following closely, the Apple M1 IO MMU driver was added, among a whole bunch of other ongoing work, adding support for Apple's new SoC in the kernel. But the feature I know you've been dreading, this release merges in KSMBD. Soak it up, Wes. I know you're loving this. This is just crazy to me. An in-kernel Samba file server. You know, SMB, the Windows file sharing protocol that accepts remote connections over the network, is now built into the kernel. And we're trying to figure out how this is even going to work. Is the kernel going to open up an interface and accept Samba connections over a new interface like WireGuard does? Or is it going to actually open up the remote port somehow on your machine? Like, we don't know, but I have a suspicion we'll find out. And the overall message is this isn't a replacement for traditional Samba for most workloads. But KSMBD does promise a high performance and more lightweight option for those of you who might need it. Hey, nothing better for my local network. 
And really, I suppose that shouldn't be too hard to do when your service is built right into the kernel. But that's definitely something we're going to test. Interestingly, Samsung's use case for this is lightweight file sharing on Android devices and other embedded applications, but we just think it might be fun to try a Raspberry Pi file server. (laughs) I do have to admit, I am looking forward to that. Another big thing that lands in 5.15 is the preempt RT locking code. This represents the bulk of the previously outstanding real-time patches for the Linux kernel. So the mainline kernel is getting close to holding all of the needed real-time functionality. And while real-time functionality isn't needed by most of us, this is going to be huge for the workloads that do require it. We know that our friends at SpaceX and JPL, for example, maintain their own patch sets to Linux just to enable real-time functionality on the devices they deploy Linux on. And this has been a long time coming. The preempt RT patch has been available for every long-term stable version of the kernel since kernel version 2.6.11. AMD users also get a lot of nice-to-haves, including future AMD users of the Steam Deck. The AMD Van Gogh APU audio driver was merged in 5.15, and the Steam Deck will be among the first hardware to actually benefit from it. Really, there is just a lot going on in 5.15. And as always, Michael Arable has a great write-up at Pharonix, which we'll have a link to in the show notes. And of course, the kernel never sleeps. With the release of 5.15, the merge window for 5.16 will open up pretty much immediately. And there are already many exciting things in the works. Linode.com slash LAN. You know why I use Linode? Because I'm not my own ISP. I don't have 11 data centers around the world, and I haven't been deploying servers in the cloud for 18 years. I have been deploying servers for more than 18 years, and that's also another reason why I use Linode, because I'm really blown away by what they have here. First of all, the pricing. It's just fantastic. It's 30 to 50% less than the major duopoly hypervisors out there. They've made a really great dashboard. I think they revved it like a couple of years ago, and now they've just been really kind of iterating on something really great, because it's it's definitely a refined product. It, it manages to strike the balance between simple, but give you advanced functionality when you need it. On top of that, they have a really flushed out API and a command line client you can use on your OS of choice to interact with Linode and do things like upload files or manage a box, create a snapshot before you make a change. What I actually do on my machines is usually I have a drop-down terminal on whatever desktop I'm using, and almost always that's where I have the Linode command line tool. So if I'm working on something, I can have that just ready to go. Drop that down, execute a command like a snapshot or something real quick, and I'm good to go. Linode is really focused on giving you a simple but powerful setup. And you can go with one of their pre-built stacks, just one-click deploy kind of thing, and they got a lot of good ones for that. That's a great way to learn, too. Or you can go the DIY route. I've actually found guides in Linode's tutorials on how to replace their images with my own custom Linux image, which I use for this VPN monster that I run for my LTE connections. But I I was just blown away that they were like, not only did they allow it, but they were showing me how to do it. (laughs) That's what's so cool about Linode. They're in it for the tech. Like I mentioned, they are their own ISP. When they did that years ago, it was like kind of like a controversial thing that Linode was using Linux as firewall and routers. Like, what are they doing? They can't do that. And now it just is commonplace. You see Linux in so many places in our network infrastructure now. So many people now do infrastructure as code. Linode was all about that early on. When things really got cooking in the cloud age, it was really when virtualization became available. 
And that was something Linode saw coming before anybody else. They saw what you could do with that before anybody did because they're geeks and they played around with this stuff. And now their service has a bunch of great features. I love their S3 compatible object storage. They have cloud firewalls, DDoS protection, VLAN support. Of course, they've got a powerful DNS manager because you're going to need that. Kubernetes support, super fast networking, and a lot more. So go get that $100 and really get an opportunity to try it. Linode.com slash LAN. Go there. Get $100 on a new account for 60 days, and you support the show. It's real easy to support the show and try out something great. Linode.com slash LAN. And Linux Action News is made possible by Ting. Linux.ting.com. Ting's my mobile service provider. They are a mobile virtual network operator. That means they focus on the customer support and a great value. Go find a plan that fits at linux.ting.com. They have a special deal going on right now as I record this. So if you're listening around release time, they have very special rates, up to 35% off on some of their plans. So go to linux.ting.com and get $25 in credit so you could really start working here. Ting has fantastic plans and rates. Whatever you need, a little bit of data, a lot of bit of data, unlimited talk, unlimited text, they've got plans for you. And they've got simple-to-understand terms and no contracts. It's simple to switch to Ting. You go to linux.ting.com. Pretty much any phone's going to work with Ting because they support multiple networks. They have coast-to-coast network coverage, and they know. They know the mass. They know what works best in your area. So you go to linux.ting.com. You check out your current phone. You create an account. You pick a plan that fits you just right. And seriously, right now, if you're listening around release time, they've always got great pricing. But if you're listening around release time, go to linux.ting.com, check out these prices. If you fit everything, everything looks good, they're going to send you a SIM card. You get that right away. You pop that in your phone, and you get activated online in minutes. You can pretty much do this entire process without having to talk to customer support because they got a great dashboard. But if you do need customer support, they got the best in the business. That's something Ting is really focused on, so they got you covered there. They send you that SIM card, you pop it in, you get going. But if you ever have any trouble, they're there for you. The next generation of Ting Mobile is incredible. And right now, the pricing is record-breaking. So get started, try it out, and see why I've been using it forever. Go to linux.ting.com. Big change for network administrators is under development in Red Hat land. It appears the Fedora project, and further downstream, Red Hat Enterprise 9, is considering removing support for the Network Information Service, or NIS. NIS solved a problem in the early days of Unix networking as the number of systems grew. It became quite a chore to copy around your Etsy password file and keep those UIDs in sync. NIS was one of the first forms of any sort of single sign-on on a local network. Not to date myself, but I'm sure some of you out there already know this, but when I was entering the industry, some folks still called it Yellow Pages, and I always liked that name better. But as you can probably guess, trademark issues ensued and the entire Unix community was just exhausted by trademark fights by this point, so the name was just changed to NIS, and then later NIS Plus in 1992. However, you'll still end up using functions and commands that start with YP. Now, these days, Linux systems still carry NIS support, and the PAM Unix authentication module supports it as well. And distributions still package the various NIS utilities. At the beginning of October, though, Bjorn Esser suggested that Fedora, at least, might stop doing so soon. Esser is working on a project to replace PAM Unix, which also receives, unfortunately, little attention these days, with a more straightforward alternative. One of the things that would make this work a little simpler would be to just drop support for NIS. So he wanted to know 
if anyone was still actually using it. Well, and they did hear from some of those users, didn't they? They seem to exist. Surprise, surprise. LWN notes they were perhaps most aptly described by Stefan John Smugan, who said, quote, The places I've seen it still being used are in universities run by people who learned sysadmin in the 90s and early 2000s. Ouch, that burns a little less. <laughs> he goes on to say, It's a lightweight system that is simple to set up and tends to be the go-to stick for a lot of, we put this together in 1999 with RHEL 6, and we've upgraded it ever since type places. Another commenter was quick to ask whether any simple alternatives might exist. Unfortunately, the answer would appear to be no. Smugan responded, There is LDAP, but that isn't light. And there is Kerberos, but that isn't easy. He added that an awful lot of the, quote, cool kids just defer to one of the large service providers for authentication services these days, a solution that doesn't seem likely to appeal to anybody who's been making the effort to keep NIS running all of these years. That's really the no-win scenario part of this, because you could, you could kind of mitigate this with modern infrastructure management tools. Um, of course, you could, de you could deploy free IPA and essentially replicate a lot of Active Directory-type functionality. None of that is as easy or quick to set up as NIS. In my opinion, it's a bit of a shame that some universal distro agnostic and universally supported Active Directory alternative hasn't been built and adopted by the wider community. From my days in both the industry of enterprise and banking and my days in education and IT support there, I think I can make a pretty solid argument that a lack of a drop-in replacement for Active Directory in other words, something that's practically built into every distro. Not having that has slowed adoption in the enterprise and in the education desktop market easily. And I think it's left the low-end market open for Chromebooks to just dominate. And of course, Windows continues to dominate in the higher-end market. I think I have to agree. You do see more and more Linux desktops in the enterprise over time, but they tend to be rolling their own solutions for user management if you're lucky enough to have user management at all. Given that it seems RHEL 9 will not support NIS, and even if Fedora punts this change for maybe a cycle or two, the final days are nigh. Well, support still remains for now. I mean, what an incredible run over the decades, from the very early days of networked Unix to 2021. No matter how you slice that, that is an extremely impressive run. And uh, I feel nostalgic for something that may be fading away just a little bit. Maybe that's why it made it in today's episode. <laughs> And while we're speaking of Fedora, on Tuesday's Linux Unplugged project lead, Matthew Miller will join us for our exit interview with Fedora 34 and our review of Fedora 35, which is scheduled to release Tuesday, November 4th. Yeah, that'll be episode 430 of Linux Unplugged, and I think that's going to be a really good conversation. But we'll keep an eye on everything going on in the world of Linux and open source, so be sure you go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to keep in touch. And don't forget links to everything we cover today at linuxactionnews.com slash 213. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us. And that's all the news for this week.